Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The population of Indianapolis has gone down. It's an interesting couple of takes on why that is. But I continue to make the argument, the argument being made by Central Indiana is, well, of course it has. Who the hell wants to be there? Which is a very problematic argument. And there are people out there who want to blame guys like me for the argument. Your problem is you talk down the city. No, 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 no. I talk up the city. Your issue is that I recognize the problems of the city. We would have more opportunities to solve problems in Indianapolis, and and I would argue in Indiana, if we were more honest about the problems and more media was willing to speak out, as opposed to just reading off of a teleprompter, smiling like everything's okay, saying things like, oh, that's funny right there, and then moving on to the next story without digging into what it means for those of us who live here. The talk radio is the only place really engaged in any level of, of, of serious assessment is the problem. So you would think that this is a conversation about population. This is actually a conversation about the failures of Indianapolis media in a massive way to address issues that are confronting it because they're all interested in being liked. And they're not interested in the thing which is a better city. We can have disagreements about what's going on in the city, but where is the deep conversation about what's happening with it? And in Indiana, for that matter. We saw riots take place two years ago. No one has ever put a microphone in front of Eric Holcomb's face, the governor, and said, why wasn't the National Guard deployed? You still can't get anybody to ask the mayor of Indianapolis... Joe Hogg said, where were you? He was at home. That's what we got told. He was at home. What was the command center? While people were getting killed, while businesses were being destroyed. You know, it's two years later. We still have a lot of empty shops in downtown. What was he doing? How, how many uh, visuals did he have? How many phone calls was he getting? Where are those phone calls? Who were they with? What got said? What emails were sent out? What emails were received? What text messages? Nothing. But we're going to have, we're going to talk about the latest DEI, this, that, and the other. That stuff doesn't save a city. Actually, saving a city does. Honest conversation does. But if you're more interested in woke than you are in the city, you've got no shot. And I want to know how much this applies into the conversation of the population went down. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It is so good to be with you. Everything at TonyKatz.com. 5,600 residents between July 20 and July of 2021. So we're still well over 800,000 people in Indianapolis. It went from 887,600 to 882. So down 5,600. And what causes that? So uh, over there at IBJ, Dave Lindquist reporting, talks to a couple different people. 
One of uh, those people is Bill Osterley, formerly, of course, of Angie's List. And you will remember that I was very bothered by Angie's List post-RIFRA when they said, well, we're not going to move forward with uh, an investment in, I forget, the area because of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. No, it's because you didn't have the money. And you should have been honest about that. And you utilized uh, a political event for, for your purpose and to, to, to pile on. I thought it was ugly. I'm never going to lie about that. It was ugly and it was wrong. Osterly has been doing a lot of moves, making a lot of moves, to focus on recruitment in Indiana and Indianapolis. Smart stuff, valuable stuff. So Osterley's point is, in cities around the U.S., we're seeing that the pandemic hit the urban core. Indianapolis hasn't been insulated from that, and it's troubling. Well, there's a, there's a truth to that. We heard the stories, and certainly we saw, in an anecdotal way, that people said, I do not want to be around where there's this mass population of people, a density of people regarding COVID. We're going to move to the country. And people started buying houses in, in New York State, for example, upstate and other places, and they redid them, and they're, and they're leading happy lives. And in a world of, of remote working, a lot of people are, are, are enjoying that life. So that could be a reason why people moved out of a downtown core, Indianapolis proper, let's call it. Michael Hicks, he's with the Center for Business and Economic Research at Ball State University, talking about population growth as the strongest single sign of regional economic health. And discussing the fact that we might see traditional patterns being tested, we're going to see a different pattern emerge, he says, and so there are more people living in places where they want to live and not be concerned about what the available job options are to them. Then there's a guy by the name of Matthew Kinghorn from the Indiana Business Research Center at the IU Kelly School of Business. Analyzing Census Bureau data on counties and cities said an estimated net out-migration of more than 9,200 Marion County residents was the primary driver of the population decline, but he's not calling remote work a significant factor. Now, if you ask the Indy Chamber... And uh, and uh, the, this mayoral appointee for economic deve- development, Portia Bailey Bernard, the city's po- population decline isn't overly alarming. Let's dismiss the politico, shall we? Of course it's alarming. What's causing it? Well, that could be up for debate. And I can appreciate that it's up for debate. The fact that we may have a theory and an idea doesn't take away from the fact that there is indeed data that can be looked at and it might take a longer time to notice it. It might take a longer time to to put it all together. If one were to deny that one of the possibilities is the observational reality that Indianapolis is unsafe, that would be insane. Could it be remote working? Absolutely, positively. Could it be changes in people's lives and lifestyles regarding COVID? Not a doubt. Not a doubt, right? It's you and me on the barstool, cigar in hand. There's the bourbon right there. And we can agree on this. Yeah, it could be this. Yeah, it could be that. To deny the problems of Indianapolis in terms of violence, in terms of perception of dangerous would be to be a failure 
in a conversation like this. Indianapolis is perceived as dangerous. And the city has done nothing to improve the view of the people who live here and the people who may want to come here for whatever type of reason, whether it be business, or whether it be life, or whether it be uh, entertainment. The city has done nothing. You tell me they put a million dollars into saying, hey, downtown is fine. They put a million dollars into lying about the downtown being fine. They were promoting downtown being fine while downtown still had plywood on the windows. And then the media apparatus here had the audacity to blame the business owners for making people feel unsafe by keeping plywood on the, the, the windows when other decisions and other rulings were coming down, whether it be George Floyd or other things. As opposed to this city not being serious about safety. They blame the business owners for protecting themselves. That happened. Media people did that shamefully as if somehow they were hearing from the mayor's office hey why don't you blame these people over here that'll be better for us oh sure sure thing mr mayor's office whatever you say golly gee maybe i'll get an interview later i get it i don't get the interview i get it and at first it was frustrating and now it's the reality that our mayor's office that our city county council's office is unwilling to discuss things just like the governor's office is i wish it was different but it is factual as a matter of fact producer ari put it out again put out again uh, the invites to come talk about this city uh we'll, we'll 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 come up with three specific things we want to talk about we'll even spell it out for them Put it out to the Democrats, put it out to the Republicans, put it out to the mayor, put it out to the governor. When we try to speak to the governor, we're like, hey, we want to talk about this thing. Something that, that the governor's doing, you know what we get back? The governor's unavailable. We don't even suggest a time. That's the response we get. We never suggested a day. Governor's unavailable. That's just the weirdest stuff in the world. Now, as a radio guy... I don't have the resources to send somebody out 24 hours a day to put a microphone in Holcomb's face saying, why won't you answer questions? Into Hogshead's face, why won't you answer questions? But the reporter class here doesn't ask any questions. I think this is a very important story. Losing population is huge. The state was crowing about the fact that we've got, you know, 20,000 more people that came into the state of Indiana last year. And other states around us are losing. Yes, the population is indeed growing. But not the population of the capital city. Everybody talks about, look at all the apartments and look at all the places to live here. And, and that's, what, that's what the future is. And there's new projects to build even more apartments. There is a belief and a theory that everybody wants to be downtown. This is where the action is. So why now is that not the case? Maybe it's because people said there are other things that are more important right now, and that's my quality of life. My quality of life is not being near a, an, an urban core and any level of population density. I'm freaked out about COVID. I want to be around no one. Now, me, I, I don't want to be around no one. I'd like to be around my wife and, and, and my kids. And then I'm good. I don't want to be totally alone. But the amount of time I spend looking for farms, 
I'm not leaving Indiana. I mean, I mean, I, I, I guess if uh, if I'm out of a job one day, I, I guess I'd have to consider it. But the plan is not to leave Indiana. I said I told the story that over the weekend I spent uh, a day and a half at uh, Lake Wawasee. It's beautiful. It it's beautiful. You have to have a couple million dollars in order to get a house over there. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy expensive. Crazy expensive crazy and i'm like yeah that's not maybe one day you know but it's it's radio money it's not tv money so so maybe one day probably not uh hopefully i'll, I'll make more friends who have a place over there and then i'll i'll be able to have my summers well well in hand but the idea of 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 the farm the idea of uh, the expansive just looking out into the world and 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 not seeing a soul I like that. Now, the truth is I'm a mountains guy. I love mountains. That's what I want to stare at. I, I, that's what I want to be around. That's where I feel uh, the most alive and most comfortable. But I happen to like I happen to like the farms. I, I do. I do. I find, I, find them, I find them just great. I never think about moving into the city. I, it, it, I guess things could change, but that right now it's not what I, what I think about. But that's about where I would live or where I'd like to vacation, something something like that. People are not wanting to be downtown could be about the quality of life things, those work-life things. But it could be about the safety as well. And nobody, nobody asks the mayor. Nobody is asking the city county council. No one pushes for answers on something this concerning, that the state can grow in population, but the capital city is losing population. Now, I believe in the growth of more of Indiana. I want to see Gary build. I want to see Muncie build. I want to see Evansville uh, build. It's better for all of us if these areas grow. It creates a better state. It creates more competition. Competition is a good thing. But if you're not willing to address the problems as they may be until you know what is, discussing the problems as they are, that's a... That's a real issue. Did people move out of Indianapolis because of violence? I don't have the answer. Is there a perception that Indianapolis is violent? Absolutely there is. And this city does nothing to counteract that. And that has to be considered in this conversation. This is my point. These conversations could be more pressing and more could actually get moving if the media of Indianapolis demanded answers about these things. But they don't. They sit there in front of teleprompters, smile like freaks, and go over stories that some newsroom put together for them without their input. And there are some good people out there, but man, do I feel for them. Just read what's on the prompter. How much input do they have into their own stories? How much are they allowed to actually go about moving their own stories? I discuss these issues constantly. I ask questions. I cannot get answers. Maybe they could. And wouldn't it be better if more of us were asking questions? Because how easy it is to dismiss the radio guy. <laughs> just a, just one of those conservative radio guys. We don't have to talk to him. Or the massive audience he's assembled. 
But if you got nine people asking the question, you got multiple um, networks asking the question, maybe you can get answers. Maybe then you start turning things within the elected officials that they realize this stuff is important. And not everybody loves you because of your wokeness. The story you would think is about population. The story is about something much greater, which is we ignore possible reasons for losing people in Indianapolis, and then we don't ask the question about why. That's that's failure. And it comes from thinking that Indianapolis is still this cute little town. Ah, it's nap town. When it's not. When it's far from it, it's a metropolis that's having issues. And there isn't a leader right now in sight to make things better. Something else we should be asking why about. Why don't we have leadership? Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. This is an issue on Joe Biden's mind. He is deeply frustrated by what he views as the sort of lack of respect from the the press and from also from his fellow Democrats about his intent to run for reelection. He can't figure out why folks won't take yes for an answer. You and I know why that is. It's because he's going to be 81 years old in 2024. He's already the oldest American president, and there's real doubts uh, about his capacity to serve a second four-year term. That's Jonathan Martin from the New York Times. There are real doubts about Joe Biden's ability to finish out a one year, the first term. Absolutely. Real doubts indeed. Who's got faith? Who believes that Joe Biden has the capacity, that right now he's got it all together. He gets notes from his staff telling him where to sit. You take your seat, you and your in capital letters. You have to tell somebody to take their seat? That's not okay. This is not a guy that's okay. This is not a guy who's got it together. So yes, real doubts about his capacity to serve a second four-year term? Absolutely. Real doubts about his capacity to serve this term. Absolutely. Meanwhile, does the U.S. military say goodbye to 60,000 reservists because someone's crazy enough to think they all have to be vaccinated or some other kind of insanity? Find everything at TonyCats.com and the book Let's Go Bourbon. Have you ordered it yet? It's time. Amazon.com. Let's Go Bourbon. It's the bourbon reader you've always needed. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. There's a report from Fox News that two men arrested with 150,000 fentanyl pills, which, of course, fentanyl kills. Uh, This, uh, uh, in California, have been released from custody on their own recognizance as a result of a court order from a judge following a risk assessment. 150,000 
thousand fentanyl pills. By the way, fentanyl is what a hundred times stronger than morphine. It's um, it's 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 a cancer patient uh, thing, you know. Sometimes utilized as as a patch. I, I, I don't knock opioids, and the Supreme Court doesn't either. I, I mean, here's a decision that really did not get enough talking about. The win for doctors when it comes to pain meds is absolutely huge. The fentanyl problem is specific uh, to to uh, fake fentanyl uh, and and uh, things coming out of China that come through the border. A guy's got 150,000 pills of fentanyl. Mother needs to go to jail. And what I would do if let's say that let's say they were from Mexico, or you can pick another nation. Pick pick a nation. Pick any nation. Pretty sorry. Let's say they were from the UK. That way, no one can accuse me of, of just yelling about uh, brown people or something because people are crazy. You come to the United States and you've got 150,000 fentanyl pills. We return you to the UK and we spread the 150,000 pills all across the country. You figure out what to do with them. Just as a lesson, don't allow that stuff to get to the US. You come from Nicaragua, you've got 100,000 pills, we send you back to Nicaragua, even if we have to use a parachute. And then we drop the 100,000 pills, you all figure out what to do with them. Gotta start treating nations with the level of respect they treat us. And me, I want to have good relationships with neighbors. I'm a big believer in building up Central America uh, via trade. We should be working on this aggressively. But you're not going to treat us well. We don't treat you well. Watch how things change when it comes to the border. But when it comes to the to the pills, um, the U.S. Supreme Court siding with doctors, a nine nothing decision. That's unanimous, folks. You had these two guys who ruled their trials were unfair because jurors were not required to consider whether the two convicted doctors had good faith reasons to believe the numerous opioid prescriptions were medically valid. So what happens is, is that doctors live in fear. And what doctors live in fear of is, is uh, the DEA. They've got somebody who, who's in pain, they prescribe pain meds. Now let's say that person who gets prescribed the pain meds then goes about selling the pain meds. They'll come after the doctor. You're overprescribing. And then the doctor says, you know what? You know what? I'm never prescribing a pain pill again. I'm done. I'm out. I'm out of the business. And then people who are actually in pain can't get any meds. And there are people out there who love this stuff, who cheer this stuff. I consider them ghoulish bastards. You can't cheer the idea of people living in pain. We are so much better off as a society because we have these pain meds, because we're able to get people to be able to live quasi-normal or very normal or absolutely normal lives because they're able to manage their pain. Somebody else is abusing the pill, so grandma has to suffer is an unbelievably ridiculous, pathetic argument, but one that is truly American. We have somebody trying to fly into the United States and they put a bomb in their shoes. Now all of a sudden, I have to take off my shoes every time I get on a plane. Nope, no one from that nation, I, or, or I shouldn't say that nation, no one like him is allowed to fly again. 
or at least for 10 years. Watch how it stops. I am discussing being aggressive to an argument. Being aggressive about how we handle things. Now, the case of the shoe bomber, uh, we, we should be clear. We shouldn't pretend that we don't know uh, history. Richard Reed was British. You might have forgotten uh, his, his name. If you had no one from London coming to the U.S. for a decade, people would say, man, don't screw with the U.S. when it comes to shoes. You watch what would happen in those countries before they allowed people on a plane. But me and you and my and my parents, my 84-year-old father, wouldn't be taking off shoes like, like we're common criminals or schmucks. I'm a, I'm a man with a theory. You can't deny that the theory has got a point. Same thing about the theory uh, regarding, um, you know, how we deal with people who allow drugs in uh, the border uh, illegally. Because that guy did something doesn't mean that I should suffer or you should suffer. And because somebody goes about selling their pills or because a doctor misprescribes or purposefully overprescribes because they're in on, on, on the deal, they're just handing out the pills, that can happen. I'm not arguing that there shouldn't be uh, something done about that. I'm arguing that it shouldn't stop my grandmother or your grandmother or yourself or your kid from being able to deal with their pain. And that's what we've done in the United States. We have absolutely told people, too bad for you. And it's gross. So the 9 nothing decision wrote that once the doctors produced evidence that they were authorized to dispense drugs like opioids, prosecutors needed to prove they knowingly or intentionally acted in an unauthorized manner. This is an important decision because it states to the DEA, you ain't that special. You have been engaged in terrorizing doctors. You've been engaged in putting people in pain and creating fear. And liking the idea that the deck was stacked against medical professionals. I don't argue that there can't be bad doctors out there. There's bad everything out there. There's bad doctors, there's bad priests, there's bad politicos, there, there's bad uh, convenience store owners, there's bad everything. There's bad producers out there. Yeah, there are. Oh, the worst. I just want to see how long we can let the silence last right there. But that doesn't mean you stop other people from doing their job. So this is an excellent decision. Very, very happy about it. In the realm of excellent decisions, this one might be awful. As is reported by News Nation, 60,000 Army reservists and Guard members could be dismissed. So the story goes that you've got uh, 40,000 Army National Guard uh, members, um, and uh, when you consider reservists, you got about 60,000 people who have not received the COVID-19 vaccine, no matter the mandate. So the question is, what happens to them? 7,000 have sought exemptions. The rest have to get vaccinated by June 30th. We're talking about 13% of the National Guard force. When you include the reservists. 
So the question before us is, is the military still really willing to do this? Vaccines lessen the severity of symptoms. We have, I believe, proven this. But vaccines do not stop you from getting COVID. And a vaccine never prevents you from spreading COVID ever. You will even note that there's no studies that you have seen or been discussed in any way publicly that discuss the idea that if you're vaccinated, somehow the disease you spread is lessened. There's nothing about that. I mean, I know it's been a long time since we've had a COVID conversation. The vaccine only reduces the symptom in you. It doesn't reduce what could be spread. So there is no point to forcing these people to be vaccinated because there's also no discussion in here of the idea of natural immunity, which we know is real. The guards vaccine percentage is the lowest in the military. You've got active duty, Army, Navy, Air Force, and the Marine Corps at 97% or greater. The Air Guard is at 94%. The Army is reporting 90% of Army Reserve Forces were partially or completely vaccinated. You really going to give up on 60,000 Guard members and reservists? All right, let's see you try. Let's see you do it. We will see how worse off the nation is because of this. By the way, if I was president of the United States, I would get rid of the vaccine requirement immediately. And anybody within the Department of Defense who objected, I would then uh, uh, demote to private and then fire. I, I mean, dishonorably discharge. Gone. You can tell me that in the military, there are rules. And you can tell me in the military, there's a price to pay for not following the rules. I'll agree wholeheartedly. There is something very wrong with forcing vaccine on people that doesn't have an effect outward. Doesn't stop spread. There is something very wrong with telling people who may question the validity of the vaccine, considering how fast it came on board. Well, too bad. You just have to trust us. There's something very wrong with that indeed. And if you're willing to give up 60,000 troops, well, I think that's crazy. But, Tony, if you don't say goodbye to the 60,000 troops, now there is no chain of command, and they're in charge, and what else can they put pressure on? Well, I don't know. What else would you let them put pressure on? This is about one specific thing. I'm sure you can find nine soldiers somewhere uh, or or reservists somewhere who have a, a beef about this or a beef about that. Where else do you have a concentration of 60,000? This is about a vaccine. If 60,000 troops said, I don't want to go fight that war, enjoy your time in jail. And you're going to spend every day in jail. Then I can keep you in jail. I got a real thing for the chain of command. I think it's incredibly important. Massively important. You you, you, uh, don't go to fight when you're supposed to go to fight. You're gone. 
This is about them not wanting to be injected with something, not them not willing to do their job. And in two years, they may feel differently. You have no reason, no need to fire them. Considering when you put it out there, you had everybody living in fear, and now everybody lives in facts. Oh, I shouldn't say everybody. Some people still live in fear. My God, some people love being afraid. I think some people love being afraid uh, in, in, in a very sexually excited state. Like, like it, totally, it totally moves them, gives them purpose and stuff. They, they love it. I, I don't know why. They love to be afraid, but they love to be afraid. It's very, very weird. It's, it's very, very weird. It, it's, it's like a fetish. You know, being afraid of COVID, being afraid of this. Their safe word is ivermectin. They're just scared. They, they love being scared out of their minds. Maybe these reservists aren't scared. They're just they they've seen some results from these vaccines and they're they're bothered. They've got natural immunity and they don't feel the need to take it. And maybe they'll feel differently two years from now. And then your number of sixty thousand might only be thirty four thousand eight hundred. And then five years after that, it might be 12,200. I think that's a better approach. I think we've learned that threatening people's jobs wasn't a good approach. It's a very un-American approach. It's an indecent approach. I think the military should put an end to their approach right now. I'm Tony Katz. Um, and we're probably only talking about the margins and we're probably only talking about a few districts and only a few states. I spent the last month traveling around the country and the only thing people are talking about when I ask them what they're going to vote on in the midterms is $5 a, a gallon for gas. Uh, and that was... That's, I think her name is Katie Kay. She's on the BBC. She was on with uh, MSNBC. And this is just the, the proof that... Roe, Roe v. Wade, and the overturning isn't the thing that moves the midterms. It's not. I put out this video yesterday on my on my video series there on Rumble, rumble.com slash Tony Katz. Make sure you go. Make sure you subscribe. It's free. Discussing this, Roe is not going to be the thing that moves the midterms. It's not. Not at all. This is an economic election. The people who are already diehards will be doing diehard things. Everybody else is moving on the economy. Which brings us to this, where the head of the New York Fed, John Williams, also a great composer, he has stated that a recession is not his base case. It was an interesting uh, conversation on CNBC. Uh, That the economy is likely to avoid a recession even with higher interest rates. And that the Fed has been raising rates to control inflation, saying that'll continue as we're far from where we need to be. Well, now we're talking about raising rates at, at three quarters of a point uh, every every time. They did it in June, uh, and now they're going to uh, supposedly do it in, in July. But he told uh, CNBC, uh, did John Williams, I think the economy is strong. Clearly, financial conditions have tightened, and I'm expecting growth to slow this year quite a bit relative to what we had last year. 
So he still sees positive GDP, gross domestic product. So a recession is two, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. That's technically what a recession is. So if you want to argue that we won't see a recession because we'll see growth at about 1% for the year, you are having an argument with semantics. You are having a very, very strange argument where you get to avoid the the technical on recession, but the nation still feels it in everything. That's That's being too cute by half. That is my view of what John Williams is saying right there, the president of the New York Fed. You still will be paying far more for all of your goods with no end in sight. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.